Good morning. If you'd look, uh, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 90. Just grab your Bible and open it right up to the middle. If you have a device, it's not so easy as that. You have to hunt and peck until you get there. As you're turning to Psalm 90, let me ask, how many of you are familiar with Alexander uh, Dumas's The Count of Monte Cristo? Familiar with this story? A few of you, okay. Set in the period of time of the French Revolution, the main character in the story, uh, Edmond Dante, is arrested the night of his wedding, charged with a crime, accused of a crime of being traitor. He's assured that this is going to get cleared up. He'll be released shortly. But the next day, he's escorted to Chateau d'If, which is France's version of our Alcatraz. No one ever escapes from Chateau d'If. And there he's left to die in a prison cell. Gives up all hope. Years go by. Wasting away. And then one day he hears knocking on the wall of his cell. And eventually he notices that the block begins to move. The block comes out and a head pops out. There is a surprised fellow prisoner. He thought he was tunneling to the outside wall. And is disappointed to find that he's tunneled inside of another cell. He gets over his disappointment. And over the next years, several years, this fellow prisoner who Edmond Dante discovers is a priest who has also been falsely accused and imprisoned and left to die in the Chateau d'If. This priest educates Edmond Dante in all areas Math, languages, science, history, culture. And they become great friends. Till one day the priest tells Edmond Dante that he's dying. He's going to die very soon. And tells Dante about buried treasure on the island of Monte Cristo. Tells him where it, where it is. He draws a map for him. It's in his head. And sure enough, the priest dies. And Edmond Dante goes into his cell after he hears the guards have come in and out. And, and he finds the priest's body in a bag. And he makes a decision. He opens that bag, he takes out the priest's body, he puts it in his own cell. He goes into the priest's cell, he puts himself in the bag, he sews that bag shut. And that night, just as Dante hoped, they throw the bag off the side of the prison into the waters below. And there he escapes from the bag and he swims until he passes out and a passing ship picks him up, rescues him. And a few weeks go by and... They end up on the island of Monte Cristo. Edmond Dante fakes an injury, tells the ship to go and come back in a few days. 
which they agreed to do. In that period of time, Edmond Dante begins to search for the treasure. Sure enough, he goes to the cave and he finds the treasure. And let me read how Alexander Dumas describes what happens when Dante finds the treasure. The chest was divided into three compartments. In the first shown bright red gold crown pieces. In the second, unpolished ignits arranged in, their, in order, their only attraction being their weight and value. In the third compartment, which was but half full, Dante took up whole handfuls of diamonds, pearls, and rubies, which as they fell through his fingers in a sparkling cascade, gave forth the sound of hail beating against the window panes. Then the chapter ends with these words. He measured out ten handfuls of pearls, precious stones, and diamonds, many of which were mounted by the best goldsmiths of the period and were valuable on account of their remarkable workmanship in addition to their intrinsic worth. Why do I tell you this story? Psalm 90 is a treasure. And to say it's more valuable than any of the other psalms or any of the other Chapters or passages in the Bible seems kind of crazy because it's all good. But over the last eight years, Psalm 90 has become valuable to me. And it's valuable not because just of its intrinsic worth, but because of the remarkable workmanship. Notice what it says at the top of Psalm 90 before you, you even get to the verse. Lord, I'm sorry, before Lord, it says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Psalm 90 was written by Moses. It's the only psalm written by Moses. It was written probably about 1450 B.C., this was when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness before they had disobeyed God and were sentenced to 40 more years in the wilderness. And as they're coming out of Egypt, Moses pens this psalm. And yet it's put in this book. Do you notice above that, these two words in all caps, book four. You ever notice this as you read Psalms? You got book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. These Psalms were put together probably about 450 BC. And this time the children of Israel are coming out of another time of captivity. They've just spent 70 years in Babylon. And they're coming out of that exile. And so as they come out of the exile, they arrange these Psalms into these five books. Book three is all about the exile itself. Book four is about coming out of the exile. And so a thousand years after Moses first penned Psalm 90, these exiles in 450 BC pluck this psalm out of where? I don't know. Their memories, have they memorized it? Have they kept it written down in scrolls? We're not told, but they take this and when they're assembling the book of Psalms, they put this one at the beginning of book four. So not only is it valuable because of its intrinsic worth, but it's valuable because of the setting 
in which we find it. And notice how Moses begins this psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses, writing this in 1450 B.C., coming out of Egypt, looking back hundreds of years before, 400, 500, 600, 700 years before, back to the time of his forefather Abraham when he was called out of Ur the Chaldees, sent into the promised land. And there he wanders around, never building a permanent home for himself. As a matter of fact, the first time in his life when he buys some property is when he buys a cave in which to bury his wife Sarah. And the same for his son and his grandson and his great-grandsons until they go off into Egypt where they live for 400 years and certainly probably during that time they built some dwellings for themselves to live in more than tents and yet never thinking that this was their home. They were away from home looking to go back to home someday. And so when Moses writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, he's writing from generations of experience of never having any place on this earth to call home. That's what a dwelling place is. It's where you call home. If you see there, maybe your translations have this or maybe you have a footnote next to dwelling place taking you down to the bottom of the page. Another word for dwelling place could be refuge. When you think of refuge, you think of a place of safety, of security, So you put all this together, we have our home, our dwelling place, our refuge, our place of safety and security. And what are people in this world looking for? That's what they're looking for. And Moses identifies that in God. And so I look at these first six verses and I see this is the penitent's identity. I didn't give you the theme. I'm sorry. If I would summarize all of 17 of these verses, I'd summarize them like this. God redeems the penitent's brief evil life. Now, what does penitent mean? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary says it's a feeling or it's expressing humble or regretful pain or sorrow for sins or offenses. The scripture, the Bible is full of examples of people who have been penitent. I think one of the best examples by way of contrast with an impenitent person is the thief on the cross. Remember the one thief on the cross was mocking Jesus? Say you saved others, save yourself, save us. The other thief rebuked him. Hey, we're here because of our own sins. He did nothing wrong. Then he turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's penitence. The other guy was impenitent. So we want to be penitent. And, And as penitents, we find our identity in the eternal God. Verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
Now, what about us today? Where do we find our identity? Where do we find our security, our acceptance, our significance, our value, our worth, our refuge? Think of a passage like Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our identity is in God through Christ. Because of who we are in Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us. People in this world are finding their identity all sorts of places. For the Christian, it's not just a name, a title. It's our identity. It's who we are. It's who we are in Christ. And we identify, find our identity then with Christ in God. And how much better that is than anything in this world. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Even if you could build a refuge for yourself here in this earth that was impenetrable, no enemy could get in. There is one enemy that will always find its way in. It's what the Apostle Paul labeled as the last enemy to be destroyed. That enemy is death. None of us can protect ourselves from this great enemy. We all will return to dust. By way of contrast, though, look at the Lord. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Think back to yesterday. What were you doing yesterday? Well, that seems like just yesterday. But it's gone. And tomorrow you'll look back on this moment and the next day and the next day and it goes like this. Or a watch in the night. If you're like me, you wake up at two in the morning. Like, hey, where did those last few hours go? They're gone like that. That's what a thousand years is like for the eternal God. These years you sweep them away as with a flood, verse 5. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Floods, dreams, grass. It goes like that. That's like a thousand years for the Lord. So find your identity in the eternal God. But let's say we do that. We are finding our identity in God. And yet, when we look at verses 7 through 11, we're reminded of the penitent's reality. If my identity is in God, why am I having all these problems? Why am I still struggling with this sin? Why can't I overcome it? This is the reality in which we live. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Notice throughout these few verses how many times God's anger and wrath is repeated over and over and over again. Our world today doesn't like to think of a wrathful God. It likes to think of God as loving, as kind, as compassionate, as merciful. And he certainly is. 
Pastor Doug recommended the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland last week. One of the things I appreciate about that book is he does a good job of balancing the compassion and long-suffering and, and goodness and love and grace and mercy of God with God's anger and God's wrath. You know, if we walked out here this morning, went someplace, and we saw a powerful person trying to molest a, a less powerful person, that should rightly prompt within us a feeling of anger seeing that happen. And we would then, if we could, try and take action to prevent that from happening anymore. And so when God sees the world, what does he see? You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. It makes him angry. This is not the way it was originally intended or created to be. So God is right to be angry at this sin. Notice it says, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Oftentimes, we look at our sin through our own lens, comparing it to other people or you know, well, you know, this sin is not as bad as that sin. But if you go and look at it from the perspective of God, all sin is evil. God hates all sin. All sin makes him rightfully angry. So it's important to look at it from God's perspective. These iniquities and secret sins. Iniquities are those sins that you do that you know they're wrong, but you do them anyway. Secret sins are those things that you don't realize are wrong that you're doing. They really are. You know, this is why as you grow more in your relationship with the Lord and you walk with him longer and longer, oftentimes you feel more guilty, more sinful than you ever felt before. And it's because these secret sins are being exposed. I remember there was a girl in Japan that came to our church for about a year or so. She wasn't a believer. She couldn't get past the resurrection. Finally, one night on a mountaintop retreat that we were having, the light bulb went on, and she was able to believe. She repented and put her faith and trust in Christ. She got baptized shortly after that, and a few weeks later, she comes to my office, and she said, you know, I used to enjoy going to church. I used to enjoy reading my Bible. Now when I read my Bible, I don't feel good. I feel bad. I said, that's good. God is exposing these secret sins. If you didn't feel that way, I'd be more concerned about you. Jump down to verse 11. We end this section with a, a question. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? This question could be taken one of two ways. One, rhetorically. Who considers? No one does. We're all downplaying God's wrath. The other way of looking at it is through the lens of those last three words in the ESV. According to the fear of you. Who really understands God's wrath and his anger? It's those who have a fear of God. So I go back to that 
opening illustration of the thief on the cross. Matter of fact, flip over to Luke chapter 23 for just a second. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. And notice what we find in these verses. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What caused the two different reactions? The one was mocking. The other was penitent. The penitent had the fear of God. So even in our reality, to have the fear of God, our identity is in God, our reality is we live in this brief evil world, and so that should drive the penitent to a certain expectancy. Notice what he says in verses 12 through 13. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Number our days, not our weeks, our months, our years. Number our days. I took a class at Grace Seminary eight years ago this month. Class was taught by a professor from Moody Seminary, Bill Thrasher. And in that class, he taught us from this passage, and he said that he had been practicing this principle for a number of years to number his days. What does that look like? I've been doing it for the last eight years. Every day in my journal, before I begin my Bible reading, I write down a number. This morning's number was 10,400. That's the number of days until I'm 80 years old. I'm optimistic. I went with a higher number. Why do I do that? Is it because I'm guaranteed 10,400 more days? Now, who wrote this psalm? Moses. When did he write it? He's about 80 years old. How much longer did he live? About 40 years. So he already went past this. As a matter of fact, when I took that class, I was pastoring a church up in St. John's, and I was a week from back surgery. I couldn't drive. I was walking around with a cane. And an elderly man in the church offered to drive me down there and then drive me back and forth from the hotel to the, co- uh, to the seminary every day. And at night, he'd tell me, uh, tell me what you learned today. And when I went over this, he said, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm 83 years old. I can't number down my days. I said, well, you're in bonus days. You get to number up. And every time we've seen each other since then, we always tell each other our number. His is going up, mine is going down. It's a sobering reality. I write down the number, and then next to that, I write the reference, Psalm 90, verse 10, 12, 16, and 17. And what's the result? What's the promise? 
What's the goal for numbering your days? Moses says that we may get a heart of wisdom. You want to be wise? Number your days. Think soberly about your time here on this earth. Every day be growing, be learning. There are key times in our life when we're looking for wisdom. Buying a car, buying a house, getting married, going to college, choosing a career, all these things. And in those times, we like to go to James 1 where it says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and he will give it to him. We're like, okay, God, zap me. I'm ready. Tell me what I should do. Kevin DeYoung in his book just do something. So that's really not how we should apply that passage. God, we shouldn't expect God to zap us. But rather, as we go through our life, we are accumulating wisdom. The more we walk with the Lord, the closer we become, the closer we become to be like Jesus Christ. So that when we come to those moments where we need to make the decision. The decision will flow out of us because we have been walking with God. We number our days. That's the first thing that the penitent requests. He has three requests. The first one is to teach us. The second one is to satisfy us. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. The world is looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. That's why they write songs like, I can't get no satisfaction. So we can only find our satisfaction in the Lord. And notice he says, satisfy us in the morning. There's something about night that's a reset button. You know, in this psalm, he's been talking about days. Here he's talking about the morning. Number your days. Satisfy us in the morning. It's one of the reasons why I try as much as possible to start my day in the morning with God's word and with prayer. Because I want to align myself with what God wants for me. Not to just do my own thing throughout the day. And so we come to that third request then, verses 16 through 17, to bless us. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. All of us have been given work to do. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. God has created each one in this room to do something unique for God. He has placed you in the home where you are living with the people you are living with, in the job where you are, in the community where you are, in the fitness center where you are, in the school where you are, because he has work for you to do. So it would behoove us, it would be wise for us to wake up in the morning, to number our days, to ask God to satisfy us in the morning, and then, God, show me what you want me to do today. I've got a schedule. I've got my day planned out. 
But Lord, what do you want me to do? May I live according to your schedule and your plan for my life. And then my children, your glorious power to their children. From the time my kids were, were conceived, I've been praying for them, that God would grow them up and, and that they would become the, the young man and young woman that God created them to be, to do the works that God created them to do. And one of the ways that happens is for them to see God's glorious power, certainly in this book, but also in our own lives. We have these faith stories that we have up here. Why do we parade these faith stories? To show God's glorious power is not just something that happened a couple thousand years ago or more, but is still continuing to happen today. We want our children to see that. And then for the favor of the Lord, our God, to be on us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That favor could be the word blessed, which is what I've chosen. It could also be the word beauty. There's a footnote next to this word in your Bible as well. And down below that, if you're using the ESV, it says, or beauty. Maybe your translation has that already. What does that mean? That as I go about and do the work of God, I want his beauty to be about that as well. That the beauty of Christ be seen in my attitude, not just my actions. In, in how I express myself, not just in what I say. Too many times we've seen people professing to be Christians that don't have that inner beauty. Instead, there's darkness, there's meanness, <laughs> they get angry, they fly off the handle. I don't want that to characterize my walk with the Lord. So here it is, Psalm 90. I hope this morning that you have seen not just the intrinsic worth of this psalm in and of itself, but how it's set in place in our Bibles and, and placed there to help us understand how our identity should be in God. Our, even though our reality is, is encompassed by sin around us, our identity can be in God. And that should drive us to have this expectancy so we come to God, ask him to teach us, to satisfy us, and to bless us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for placing, the, preserving this psalm for the thousand years from the time that Moses wrote it until it was compiled into this book, for keeping it for us here thousands of years later. And it's just as true today as it was when Moses wrote it. So Lord, I pray that each one of us here, whether maybe we're here today or watching on the live stream and we've never repented, we've never been that penitent person. We've been the one thief on the cross that has been the mocker. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that we would become the penitent one. Repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who have been walking with you, Lord, teach us to number our days, satisfy us, and bless the work of our hands upon us. Yes, bless the work of our hands. In Jesus' name, amen.